Amen. All right. It was a rather tough period in his life. And here he was just having moving again and having to start a new school again. And his parents casually making the statement, oh, again, you'll make new friends. It's okay. But it was never that easy for a sixth grader. And to make matters worse, his mom, who was always at home, was now off to join the workforce due to the strain of finances. And his, his dad worked harder than anybody he knew, but it was the 70s gas scare. Remember that? And it just had everybody panicking. And it was this parental exodus from the home that left him and his three siblings with a newfound freedom that they quickly demonstrated they didn't know how to handle. And as the fighting and the pressures increased, so did the pain in this little boy's heart. And he was never the praying type because, you know, hey, his family, they didn't get into that church-going business stuff, and, but there was nowhere else to turn. He just had to know that everything was going to turn out all right in his crazy mixed-up world. And so he actually went outside and he inquired to the sky and he just simply said, God, are you up there? Do you really exist? If you're up there, God, please send me a lightning bolt so I'll know. Nothing. Okay, God, I'm going to walk around this house, and if you really exist, send me a lightning bolt just so I know. I kid you not, true story. Next couple hours involved this little boy taking a monotonous series of lap after lap around the premises, and he didn't get his lightning bolt. So now frustrated, he stopped, and he made his defiant declaration, shaking his fist to the sky. Fine, God, from now on, I'm an atheist. Now, he really didn't know the full impact of what that word and what it meant. He just figured it was used of those who were kind of mad at God. And despite his childish rebellion, 15 years later, out of love and mercy, God did send this boy a lightning bolt in the form of a direct encounter with his son, Jesus Christ, and it pierced his broken heart. But rather than destroying him, this shocking encounter healed and restored his shattered soul. Now, for those of you who don't realize, the little boy was me. That's part of my background. And Lord willing, in a few weeks, I'm going to share my testimony again of how God has had mercy upon me. And the reason why I share that story again, even just that little slice, is because Christians, I think this is what we forget. I believe even as a Christian, we get in our own little Christian bubble. We get into our own little Christian world and we forget there's a world out there that needs Jesus Christ. And and, and I would venture to say that my story is a much more common scenario than we think. The average person today is flooded with questions just like I was, just like I grew up out in the middle of nowhere in the, mid, in the Midwest. Is there really a God? Where did I come from? What happens when I die? Is there life after death? Is there meaning and purpose to life? Is this it? They've got the same questions. And I'm telling you, it's driven our world, whether you realize or not, into a frantic search right now, right now, okay, for purpose, direction, and truth about their existence. Believe it or not, millions of people all around us right now, have you been watching, they're on a quest for some secret knowledge, some, some secret alien book. Maybe the aliens have the answer outside of mankind, right? So some ser- uh, uh, old, mysterious book, religious book they find buried in the dirt that will unlock the, and solve all of our problems. Now, the irony is this. That mysterious book that everybody's in search of, like I used to be, is collecting dust on virtually every bookshelf in America. <sighs> yeah, the truth's out there, all right. It's right here. X-Files started up again, didn't they? Right? Okay. And and, and it isn't because there's a lack of Bibles. Well, they don't have a Bible. No, listen to this stat. Among households which own a Bible, the typical count in America is three Bibles per household. Almost every household in America, reportedly, 92% owns at least one Bible. And listen, this includes most homes in which the adults are not practicing Christians, as well as hundreds of thousands of atheists. Everybody's got a Bible, but they don't read it. And they're off over here looking, maybe this will give this the answer, maybe this will give this, maybe that, maybe these guys, maybe that thing. And it's because of this self-imposed ignorance of God, it's right there, that comes from not studying the Bible. The lives of so many people 
today, Christian, are shattered and empty and broken and hurting just like I was growing up. It still goes on today. And here's the kicker. Hey, it's one thing if the non-Christian was doing this, the world was doing this. I, I get that. I've been there. They don't know any better, right? But here's what I've noticed because of the apostasy in the American church today. <laughs> Christians are acting like this, right? Believe it or not, folks, churches across America are also refusing to study the Bible. And because of the lives of so many professing Christians are filled with just as many questions and just as much pain as the rest of the world. When the whole time through Jesus, you and I, the church, are to be the light and the salt and the hope of this world through Jesus. Isn't that ironic? It's crazy, okay? And because of this, listen, here's the crux of our study. We now have churches full of Christians who are acting like practical atheists. The American church is flooded with so-called Christians who are acting like practical atheists. Here's what the premise is. We say we believe in God, of course, right? Somebody comes up to you, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, of course. I go to church service. Doesn't make you a Christian. But of course, we say we believe in God, but here's the problem. The proof is not in the pudding. We act like God doesn't exist with our lips and our lives. We're giving people a different impression. And it's not just detrimental in our walk with God. They're watching us. It's detrimental, and it keeps people from believing God. So to avoid this irony of Christians living like practical atheists by not knowing who God is, we're going to figure out who he is, and we're going to begin a new study called The Character of God. Okay, The Character of God. We're going to go down deep and discover who is this God. Get acquainted. Listen, not just know in our head, but emulate that with our lips and our lives. And it's pretty simple. We're going to start at the very basic core foundation. If there is God, that's the question. That's the question I had as a young boy growing up. That's the question that people around us have today. And that first question is this, okay, is God real? Is this just a pipe dream? Is this just opiate for the masses? Is this some little excuse, some crutch to get by in life? Or is there really a God? Well, yeah, there is, okay? But as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. Let's open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. And let's find out how can we know that there really is a God, the core foundation of his character. He is real, okay? Hebrews, and uh, as you turn to Hebrews, hey, I got to say it every time I get to this book, the only book in the Bible that demonstrates that men must make the coffee in the morning. Yeah, the women's all, always like that one, Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Yeah, three of you just got that. Hebrews chapter 11, <laughs> verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at what's going on there. How can we know the existence of God? Is he, in fact, real? Let's take a look. Verse 1, now by what? What's the word there? Faith. Okay. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at whose command? God's command. Why? Because were you there? Please, nobody raise your hand. Thank you. Right? So you got to use faith, right? Uh, was the universe formed at his command and so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered uh, to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was committed as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks today even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Hey, that's kind of like a rapture. And he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Listen, and without what? Faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So the scripture clearly tells us, guys, right here at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, what faith really is, and you need that same faith to believe in the existence of God. Once we first believe by faith that God exists because we can't see him, 
Well, if we can't see it, that means it can't be real. That's a lie. Think about that logically, right? How many guys see the radio waves going through this building right now? Please don't raise your hand, right? How many guys see the TV waves, right? How many guys see the heat waves in different ways, microwaves, all the ways, right? So that means that since I can't see it, radio and TV is not real. Well, that's ridiculous. So this is a lie, the premise that just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not real, okay? That's what the world tries to get people to believe. That's not true. You don't do that in other arenas of life, okay? But it says, once we first believe by faith that God exists because we can't see him currently now, we will one day, he is going to faithfully reward us as we seek him. That's the biblical definition of faith. Now, here's the problem. Most people in our world today have a hard time believing even this basic premise on God's character, hello, he's real, because their version of faith is the exact opposite of what we just read here in Hebrews and what is required. They do not say, I'll see it, when I believe it by faith, but they'll say this, I'll believe it when I see it, okay? And, but as we read, this is not faith, and it's not even logical because you don't even do that with other things that you know are real, okay? And it's this backwards faith that keeps people from believing just the basic core truth that, folks, there is a reason why we're here. It's not make-believe. It's not opiate for the masses. God is real. Now, I said all that to get to this. Yes, it is by faith, but did you know that God did not say that when you become a Christian, you check your brain at the door? Right? Did you know the scripture says, God says, come, let us reason together. Please bring your brain with you. Turn to somebody and say, hey, you got your brain? Praise God. You're going to need it today. Okay, bring your brain with you, okay? It's not a blind faith as we are attacked and accused of. Yes, it is by faith. That's the core issue. But it is also founded on logic and reason. We're going to see that today. God is merciful to us, just like a doubting Thomas. He doesn't have to give us any evidence. He can just say, you need to deal with this by faith and accept that, right? But he's so merciful to us. He helps us in our unbelief. And he does that by giving us various logical evidences with the brain that he gave us to see, yes, I am real. It's all over the place. And that's what we're going to deal with today. The first logical evidence that God is real is what's called the ontological argument or the argument of being. You got to say that really slow because if you say it real fast, people think you're talking about a little legume or something, but not a being, but a being, okay? And believe it or not, this argument, big word, okay, big word, ontological, but it's argument of being, is what basically God told Moses when he had a question, right? Let's take a look at that passage in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Moses said to God, right? He saw the burning bush, right? He's been out there for about 40 years, kind of ended on you know, not the best note with the Israelites, and he goes and hikes. Uh, tails it out there for 40 years, sees the burning bush, the vision with God there. And, and so God says, hey, I want you to go talk to my people. And Moses goes, what? I've been gone 40 years. It wasn't on the best of terms. And what? Right? He says, Moses said, God, God suppose I go to the Israelites. And I say to them, uh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they're going to ask me, right? Well, what's his name? God, then what am I going to tell them? Right? Right? And so God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you, okay? And so here we see the truth that God declares, hello, he just is. He is the great I am. He always been who he always will be, okay? Who he is, he is the one and only supreme being, the self-existent one. Because you hear people say that, right? Well, who made God? Actually, that's an illogical question, if you think about it. Because God, by definition, is self-existent. Because if God were created, i.e. somebody made him, then he wouldn't be God. Because if he depended upon somebody else, i.e. somebody else would be supreme, right? So if the basic core issue is if there is a God, period, he has to be supreme by definition, and he has to be self-existent, i.e. nobody made him. As we're going to see in a little bit, he's above and beyond time. That's a time-based question 
being asked upon a being who's above and beyond time, so it's illogical. Hey, that's pretty deep. You're not going to get that on a granola bar. Woo-wee. Let's close in prayer. No, we got a lot more to go. Bring your brain in with you, okay? All right, but he is the self-existent one, okay? He doesn't have to prove his existence, right? He simply tells Moses he just is. And he calls his people to come and worship him. And whether you realize or not, in essence, this is the ontological argument or the argument of being. And it goes like this. The very fact that anyone even considers that a supreme being or God exists, and we do, we're here, by the way, okay, then this, in a way, is admitting there has to be a God. Why? Because think about it. If God didn't exist, we wouldn't conceive of him, right? I mean, if there is no God, why bother? Yet, why do we see even outside these four walls here today, okay? Every culture on the planet, every culture on the planet has an automatic inward desire automatically to worship something or someone higher above themselves, right? Everybody does, right? The question is, where did that come from? Wouldn't it be logical to say that the reason why people even conceive of a God, they have this automatic inward desire to worship something higher and above themselves, i.e. a God, is because God put it in their hearts to do so in the first place? Well, guess what? That's exactly what the Bible says God did in this passage in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he, God, has also set what? Eternity in the hearts of men. That's why even as a young boy, even though I was being lied to by the school saying, you came from evolution, you came from a cosmic goo, from the goo to the zoo to me and you. No, I didn't. Even back then, folks, I said, no, there's got to be more to life. Everybody knows that. No, man, they're better. There's God, because God set eternity in our heart, right? Yet, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And that's when the curiosity goes. I've got to find out. And that's when the journey begins. And so the Bible says God put eternity, listen, in the hearts of mankind first so that we might even conceive of him. And that's why we see everybody's doing that on the planet. Secondly, hopefully to motivate us to seek him out by faith and have a relationship with him. And so it's this universal automatic inward desire to worship something or someone higher and above ourselves shows us that God is, in fact, real. The second evidence showing us that God is real is what's called the cosmological argument or the argument of beginnings. Now, I hate to use that picture for obvious reasons, but it's going to make sense here in just a second, okay? The cosmological argument or the argument of beginnings, okay? It's kind of like wrapped up in the phrase we say all the time, which came first, the... Yeah, I even hate saying it. I think they say the cow or the something else, but no. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Okay, we know that, okay? Believe it or not, folks, I've been sitting on this video for years waiting for the right place to share it, and today is the day I'm excited, okay? And believe it or not, science is finally catching up to the scientific fact that God is the one, when he made creation, did he make Adam just a little blob? And over millions of years, he turned into Adam. And somehow he happened to find Eve. And millions of years, here came an, another blob that turned into a dress. And millions of, is that how it went? When God created everything, everything was fully formed. Fully formed man, fully formed woman, fully formed animals, right? Bang, science just caught up to that. Watch this, they even admit it. Well, no, I take that back. They refuse to answer it. Watch this. 
Scientists in Britain have actually spent money and devoted a powerful computer to answer the question that's been around so long it's become an expression. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Their conclusion, by the way, the formation of an egg is only possible with a protein found in a chicken's ovaries. Thus, the chicken must have come first. No word from the UK as yet on where the chicken came from. Ooh, ooh, I'll answer that. The spirit of Arnold Horshack is all over me, Tom. Mr. Goddard, I have the answer. His name is God. Can you believe that? That right there just totally disproved evolution. How do you have a fully formed creature pop on the scene? Completely denies evolution. It's a lie. And that's why they're finally catching up to the very first page, the very first verse of the Bible. It's like, you don't even have to read the whole thing. Just at least make it to the first verse. This is why. Genesis 1.1, in the what? Beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you want to expand it in the Hebrew, it's kind of cool. It says this, at the beginning of time, there was a beginning of time, God created from nothing the heavens or space and the earth matter, time, space, matter. That's our continuum that we live in, okay? Scientists, how much money did you have to spend to figure that out? Just read the first verse, okay? Right here, okay? But here we see the Bible clues us into the awesome truth. There really was a time when there was no time and that there was a beginning of time. And God uh, dwells above me on time because time, just like matter and space, are created things. That's why he's self-existent. You can't ask a time-based question to a being who's outside of time. Illogical. So nobody made God, even by definition, okay? But this is what it says. And so here's the logical question. If something has a beginning, then there must be an ultimate beginner. Why? Because if ever there was a time when there was nothing, what would we have today? Nothing, right? Why? Because let me give you a couple examples. We know this is true. How many of you guys get to the end of the month, right? And you look in your checkbook, and man, there is nothing. <laughs> it's just nothing there, right? Time to start eating canned food, honey, right? And you close the checkbook. How do you guys wish this would, this would fix it? You close your checkbook that has absolutely nothing in it. You wait five minutes. You open it up. Hey, it's full of stuff. It slowly evolved over millions of years. Spontaneous combustion popped in money in my checking account. That's how it works. No, actually, there are people who do that. It's called forgery. I don't recommend that. Okay. But no, no, right? You can't get something from nothing. When nothing's there, nothing happens, right? Let me give you another example. How many guys have ever had a birthday? Raise your hand. Now, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're scaring me right now. Okay. But we all had a birthday. I don't know where you came from. But, uh, but, but what, what are we doing when we celebrate our birthday? Tom's on Monday. What are we actually really, in essence, doing? We're celebrating Tom's beginning point, i.e. when he was born, right? Because we came from something. We came from mom and dad. And I'll say it again, folks. This is very profound. Did you know it's been scientifically proven that if your parents don't have any children, you won't either? <laughs> That's two profound thoughts in one day. Why? Because something can come from nothing. And this, again, is what makes evolution even more absolutely illogical and ludicrous, okay? In order to try to do away with the existence of God, the evolution says the universe uh, didn't come from God. No, no, no. Here's what they say. It came from the Big Bang, right? But what's funny about the Big Bang is rather than disproving the existence of God, it actually proves the existence of God. Think about it, guys. The Big Bang Theory admits that there was a beginning point of creation. Well, if there's a beginning, then there must have been a beginner. And they say, well, that beginner was a little bitty tiny ball of dirt. That's what it was, a little bitty tiny ball of dirt. Now, if you do the research, uh, we dealt with this in our Young Creation study. Uh, it used to be millions of miles across. Then it shrunk down to 100 
thousand miles across. And, like, and now it's just what's called an infinitesimal dot. Well, that's a lot of stuff squishing that dot, number one. Okay, a little bitty tiny ball of dirt. Okay, so, but the logical question is, well, wait a second. Okay, so you got it all the way down to, in the beginning, dirt. Logically, what's the next question? Where did the dirt come from? Where did the dirt come from? Who made the dirt? And why is that logical? Because it's common sense. Something cannot come from nothing. It's illogical. And believe it or not, I've shared this before in our Wednesday night studies. Did you know they've actually, like a video, they won't answer. Oh, they have yet to come from the answer. And that's what they do. They come up with a word, a big word. And somehow it explains it all away and we're not supposed to think about it anymore. One of those words is anomaly. When they find something that agrees with the biblical account and denies evolution, they say, well, that's, that's a strange anomaly. Well, okay, call it catfish lips. I don't care. You didn't answer my question. Right? But at this point, when you say, where'd the dirt come from? They actually have labeled it, they call it the X factor. <gasps> Doesn't that sound scientific and expensive? Right? You know what the X factor is? That's the fancy, smancy way of saying, we have no stinking idea. Just like the fully formed chicken, they don't want to answer it. But it doesn't, you, it doesn't explain it away. Oh, if you want to go even worse, then you want to ruin their day, then ask them, keep going. Where did the space for the universe come from? Not just the ball of dirt. Where, where, where did matter come from in itself? Where did the laws for the universe come from? Because everything's perfectly or organized. It's not some chaotic random event. Everything is organized by scientific laws. We're even taught those laws in school. Where did matter get so perfectly organized? Where did the energy come from to do all the organizing in the first place? Where, when, and why, and how did life come from nothing? Why? Because if ever there was a time when we truly had nothing, what would we have today? Nothing. nothing. But since there was a beginning, they even know it's a beginning. It implies that beginner, and the very first verse of the Bible tells us that beginner was God. He is real. The third logical evidence is what's called the anthropological uh, argument, the anthropological argument or the argument of morals. Where did this inward sense of right and wrong come from? If evolution is true, you shouldn't have a right and wrong, right? The strongest, the fittest shall survive. Let's take a look at that. This is Romans chapter 2, and Paul uses this argument after people saying, you know, oh, you can't hold me accountable. I didn't have enough proof that God existed. Well, here's one of it. It's called the argument of conscience. Romans 2, 14 through 15. Indeed, when Gentiles... Uh, who do not have the law, in, you know, out the Gentiles, somebody who's not a Jewish person, the rest of us, uh, th when they do by nature things required by the law, they're a law unto themselves. Wait a second, they never had a copy of the Torah, they never had the Ten Commandments. How do they know what the law is? I didn't even share it with them. How, where did that inward law come from? He says, even though they're a law unto themselves, okay, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written where? In their hearts. Where'd that come from? Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them. In other words, there's a conscience, oh, that was right, oh, that was wrong, is what Paul is saying. And so that's the logical question. The Bible says that mankind, all of mankind, has this inward sense of right and wrong. Where in the world did that come from? Even if somebody says, you know, because you hear the skeptical question, right? What about the guy in the desert island who never heard about Jesus? What about the guy in some strange mountaintop surrounded by monkeys or whatever, right? And he never, you know, had a copy of the Bible. You mean to tell me God's going to hold him accountable? Yes, he will. As we're going to see, you should know there is a God because the only reason why you have this universal moral law is because it comes from a universal moral law giver, i.e. God. We're created, the Bible says, in the image of God spiritually, yes, but also morally. That's why we have a sense of right and wrong. We're also going to get into another reason why you have no excuse here in just a second, and that's the light of creation through God's design, okay? But this is the logical question. How could there be a universal moral law on the hearts of all people? Where do they, they just pop out of thin air? I mean, if evolution is true, and if it's some chaotic random event, and if natural selection 
was right, you shouldn't have morals, right? You certainly shouldn't have mercy, right? Why would, you have, why would mankind have mercy and distribute mercy if evolution is true? When it's the strongest, the fittest, right? I shouldn't have, mercy would be counterproductive to evolution, okay? And those who believed in it, like Adolf Hitler, how much mercy did he have? Yeah, he was an evolutionist as well as a cultist, okay? But where did this come from? Or logically, again, could we say universal moral laws must have come from a universal moral lawgiver, i.e. God, okay? And that's what the Bible says. And they were put there to show us that God is real, okay? And that's not the only attribute. Again, I mentioned, I mentioned mercy, okay? Evolutionists have no explanation for these as well. If God isn't real, then where, when, why, and how did uh, mankind supposedly evolve feelings, why would you feel anything for anything? Where did thought evolve? Where did the ability to experience guilt, to show love, again, mercy, where did that come from if evolution is true? In fact, mankind, where did man's ability to think abstractly or appreciate beauty come from? And if man is no different than the animals, as they would have you and I believe, then why can't they do the same thing? Let me give you some examples. How can we never see peacocks painting portraits like Picasso? I mean, they got it easy. They got the quills right there. Just pop one out. Whip out this masterpiece for all to appreciate. Right? Why don't we see chickens constructing massive skyscrapers? Because they're evil is the answer. Let's move on. Okay. Why don't, <laughs> why don't we see dogs becoming doctors, you know, to help the dying and the poor? And by the way, if we supposedly came from apes, why are there still apes? Right? And, and shouldn't they have evolved out of existence by now? Think about it. And if they supposedly gave birth to a human at one time in the past, why don't we see him do it again? Oh, no. In a land far, far away. Millions and millions of years ago. Well, you can't test that. That's a lie. Okay? Because the whole premise is a lie. It's ludicrous. And the reason why is because mankind was created morally in the image of God. We came from Adam who came from God, not an ape. And it's there to show us God is real. The fourth evidence that he is real that we're going to deal with today is called the teleological argument or the argument of design. The argument of design. This is that first argument that Paul uses, again, before people. Hey, you can throw out any scenario you want. Guy on a desert island, guy on a mountaintop. You just look at creation, you got no excuse because it all shows a design. This is what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, his existence. Well, how? Well, here's your big one. For since the what? Creation of the world... His invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what? Being understood from what has been made, creation, so that men are what? There it is, without excuse. You see anything in creation, you experience creation, not only the conscience, you have no excuse. There's enough evidence to show you logically there has to be a God. And the reason why is because when you see God's creation, you see absolutely intricate, amazing design. And the argument of the teleological argument, argument of design goes like this. When you see design in something, it implies a designer. And again, that's common sense. Again, on Wednesday nights, I've given the watch analogy. How many different times? Uh, if, uh, watch, if I had a watch, my watch busted. <laughs> I miss Sparky. No, if I had a watch on my arm, but the watch I used to have before it busted, okay? If I were to, and I was serious about this. I mean, I came up this morning, and I was, I was serious. Rick, hey, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for that other watch, too, and I still got to get sized, by the way. But uh, this other watch that you replaced with the other watch, um, hey, I just want to let you know that I didn't get that at the store. I didn't get that at Walmart. No, no, here's what I did. I was driving into services this morning, and you guys know that empty field over here? 
right? right? And, and something just, just caught the gleam of my eye. And, and I stopped the car, jumped the fence, and avoided the neighbor's shotgun. No. <laughs> right there in the dirt was this, was this watch with about 12 moving parts. It's awesome, man. I mean, fully functional, working, correct time, the whole nine yards, right? And I'm convinced that it was over there. Why? Over millions and billions of years, the rocks and the wind and the sticks all molded together at some point in the long, distant past. And you got to squint your eye when you say that. In the distant past, lightning bolt hit it, and it produced this watch. If I was absolutely deadly serious about that, not even a crack in a joke, and I really believe that, as your pastor, what would you do? I don't know what all that mumble was. Let me translate it for you. We're going to have a congregational meeting and kick Pastor Billy out. We need a new, new pastor. Or if that was a mumble from a visitor, hey, we're not going back to that church. He's a Lulu, right? Okay, why? Because it's common sense. It's just a watch. Watches don't make themselves. Watches are designed by watchmakers. That's a watch with 12 moving parts. Ludicrous to say that evolved over chance. I don't care how many years you throw on top or sticks or mud. But our bodies have about 50 trillion cells with all of our organs that all have to be there all at the same time fully functioning. You're going to say that did? you got to have more faith to believe in the lie of evolution than in the existence of God. Okay, It did not happen by chance. And so we're going to close today. I'm going to share with you a smidgen. This is a small We did 10 weeks. If you want to go back, go to the website, do whatever you want to do. 10 weeks on intelligent design. Okay, on Wednesday nights, going all the way from the telescope down to the microscope. In fact, the further you get down below, the more complex it gets. I'm going to give you just a little bit of proof showing us that God has got design everywhere, showing that he's the designer. Nothing in our world happened by chance, okay? Let's take a look, first of all, with the design of the universe and the earth, a couple of characteristics. Everything is precisely placed and timed just like the pieces of a watch. Okay, even on a massive scale. How about the force of gravity? If the force of gravity was 1% higher, our sun would be much bigger and life on earth would cook, okay? But if it were just 1% less, then the sun would be too small and we would freeze. Either way, no life. It has to be exactly what it is dialed in or life is not going to happen. A nuclear force, if there were a very slight increase in the nuclear force, then the chemicals of life, oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon would be almost non-existent, and a very slight decrease in the force, and the only element in the universe would be hydrogen. Either way, no life. Now notice this, just one of these things out of place, just one, you couldn't have life. And folks, we're just getting started. There's a bunch of them, and I'm not going to share them all. Get this study. The electromagnetic coupling constant. Now, how many guys besides Ken woke up this morning and says, I've got to understand what the electromagnetic coupling constant means? <laughs> Praise God, Brian and JJ and whoever's back there. Oh, Aaron, today's your day to shine. This is that force which causes uh, like charges to repel and opposite charges to attract. See, that's why you got married. It's because of this guy. Right? Apparently. No, it's not. Anyway, but if you're having a rough marriage, maybe you can blame it on this guy. But uh, here's what this thing is. This is, uh, if there was a slight constant, just slightly uh, uh, stronger, uh, then the, it would keep the molecules from existing and no life could ever exist. But if it were slightly smaller, then the electrons would leave the nucleus, once again, producing the same result. You couldn't have life. How about the expansion rate of the universe? Everybody knows it's expanding, but it has to be expanding at the exact rate. Listen to this. If this were just a few percent slower, then all the matter in the universe would collapse into a ball. How many guys would say that would ruin your day and we wouldn't make it to the chili cook-off contest? Yeah, serious issue, serious issue. Uh, and if it were slightly faster, then the galaxies and stars would not have formed. Either way, you couldn't have life. How about the distance between the stars? This is cool. If the distance between the stars was just a few percent 
closer or further away, listen, this would destabilize the planetary orbits around the sun and the earth would not be capable of supporting life. Okay, it's almost as if somebody literally knows everyone by name and he strategically placed them exactly where they need to be. Wonder who that is. Read Psalms. He tells you exactly. Uh, that's obviously God. But how about the Earth's distance from the sun? Remember, it's supposed to be some random chaotic event and just happened to land right where it's at and everything else. Are you kidding me? Watch this. If the sun were just a little bit further away than the, the Earth, obvious, what would happen? We would completely freeze over. Flip it around. If it was a few percent closer, what would happen? We'd boil. We'd fry, okay? In either case, it has to be right where it's at or you don't have life. Even the moon is important. If the moon were slightly smaller, then the tides and winds would be too small and the earth would overheat, okay? Also, if the moon were slightly bigger, this would result in ferocious winds, massive tides, and would flood the earth twice a day. Here comes your third dramatic thought of the day. And it's been scientifically proven that you can comfortably drown only once a day, okay? So... <laughs> Once again, folks, I don't know about you, but everything in our universe, in the sky, in the stars, everything shows absolutely amazing design, okay? And again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Get more on our other study, okay? But it shows us that all of life, everything, folks, as far out as you can go in the telescope, it shows design. And so what's the conclusion? If you see design in something just like a watch, and if the universe is all placed there with precise places and timing just like a watch, it had to come from somewhere. There's a designer, i.e. God. We're going to finish up now on the human body. You tell me if even one cell of us evolved from chance. That's a big lie. Let's take a look at the design of the human body. And what we're going to do is we're going to start with the internal organs. Did you know our kidneys contain approximately 280 miles, not inches, 280 miles of tubes. They filter 185 quarts of water a day from our blood. That's some serious plumbing, Right? And we all know, Tom, that the plumbing in our houses and every facility that we ever went into evolved over millions of years, right? As somebody went to a pipe and supply company, took a stick of dynamite, and there came the plumbing for our house, all strategically placed. No, somebody, an engineer, designed the plumbing system and installed it. This is way more complex. That's just one little organ, the kidneys. Did you know our heart pumps 5,000 gallons of blood a day and beats approximately 100,800 times a day? or 2 billion, 500 million times in average lifetime? How many, how many guys would like to have an engine in your car or truck that's that efficient? Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, because we all know that engines happen as a random result of an explosion in an auto parts factory. And every million years or so, we all wait in line. Hey, maybe I'll get my engine today. Oh, hey, look, a perfectly formed engine, and we'll just take it home and install it. And... No, engines are designed. And this is way more complex. That's just the heart. Did you know our bodies replace over one trillion, not million, not billion, one trillion cells a day, and the lining of our digestive tract turns over about every two days? Faster if you eat spicy Mexican food, Bobby. Had to throw that in there. Did you know that our bodies make about two to 10 million blood cells every second? Every second. And if you lined up the red blood cells in one person's body, end to end, they go around the equator four times. Two to 10 million every second. How would you like to be a person in business and you have a product to sell and that you had designed a factory that could pump out two to 10 million products every second? God did. And, and folks, that's just the blood cells, okay? How about our skin? This is wild. Did you know that the lining in our skin turns over about every two to four weeks, listen, and that we shed about 40 pounds of skin in a lifetime? Isn't that wild? Hey, this is why, me personally, I don't diet. Because by the time I die, 
I'm dropping 40. I'm happy. <laughs> the skin diet. Okay, that's gross. No, but speaking of gross, hey, <laughs> this is a mystery solved. Have you ever bought a couch at a garage sale? Don't those things weigh like a million pounds? You wonder why? Maybe it's all that skin, okay? Well, think about it. They're always heavier, right? It's gross. Okay, no, not only that, have you guys ever thought about this? Um, we've had these pews for a while. How much dead skin is on that pew that you're sitting in right now? Now you know why they call it a pew. <laughs> At least that's a chrome theory. Uh, let's move on. How about our brains? Did you know the average brain weighs about three pounds, yet contains 12 uh, a billion cells, each of which connected to 10,000 other brain cells, making 120 trillion connections? That is the most sophisticated computer. And we all know the computers arrived from an explosion in the radio shack. Once again, get in line, wait for the next explosion. That's how you get your new laptop. Excuse me, absolutely crazy. And the brain, on top of that, controls hearing, sight, smell, speech, eating, resting, learning, and stores so much memory data that by the age of 40, it would take the Empire State Building full of computers just to store the same amount of information. Some less than others, but we're not going to go there. That causes a church split. But that's an amazing hard drive. Where do hard drives, do they just pop on the scene out of the dirt? Somebody designs those things, okay? Absolutely amazing. How about the DNA? Did you know the DNA molecule in our bodies is the most complex molecule in the universe? Its code, listen, is so unbelievably complex that if you typed it all out, it would create enough books to fill the Grand Canyon not once, not twice, not four, 40 times. Computer code. Computer code just happens when a monkey is... No, somebody's designing that thing with intelligence, Okay, absolutely amazing. And in fact, your body has 50 trillion cells, each cell with 46 chromosomes, but if you took all the chromosomes out of your body, it'd fill up only two tablespoons. Oh, by the way, and if you stretch them out and tie them all together, one person's chromosomes would reach from the earth to the moon five million times. Absolutely amazing micro design in the human body. And real quick, let's go back to the cell. The cell, remember they tell us, oh, there's such, it started with a simple cell. There is no such thing as a simple cell. That's a lie. The cell, a tiny cell in the human body, is a literal factory containing an elaborate network of interlocking assembly lines, each composed of large protein machines bristling with high-tech machinery. On the outside are sensors and gates and pumps, identification markers. Inside it's jam-packed with power plants, automated workshops, recycling units. In fact, they even have miniature monorails that whisk materials from one location to another. And that's why it's been stated that even the most advanced, modern, automated factory made by man with all its computers and robots all coordinated on a precisely timed schedule is less complex than the inner workings of a single cell. As this video shows, watch this. Science has revealed the details of an entire system of information processing that bears the hallmarks of intelligent design. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. 
Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. This is absolutely mind-boggling to perceive at this scale of size such a uh, finely tuned um, apparatus, a device that's, uh, that bears the marks of intelligent design and manufacture. So much for a simple cell which is the whole basis of the lie of evolution. And that's why the so-called uh, so uh, simplest of all cells, it's called the paramecium, when they get to looking at it, it's actually more complex than the space shuttle, which, by the way, is the most complex machine mankind has ever designed and built. And you're going to say this all happened by chance? I don't think so. One more, we're going to close. Now I want to go just one step further, and then we're done. Let's not just take a look at the human cell. Let's just not take a look at just a, a bacteria. I just want to look at the tail on a single bacteria. Watch how absolutely crazy design. It's called the bacteria flagellum. This is the tail-like structure that propels the E. coli bacteria through the microscopic world. Okay, listen to this. It consists, uh, it consists of about 40 individual protein parts, including, as you can see pictured here, a, a stator, a rotor, a drive shaft, a U-joint, a propeller, and it makes it a microscopic outboard motor. Well, how does the motor run? Well, it creates an electrical power to run the motor by developing a voltage difference across the cell membrane. Well, how good of a motor is it? Well, it runs at 100,000 RPM, can stop on a microscopic dime, turn a quarter turn, shift direction, start doing 100,000 RPM in the opposite direction. You try to design a transmission today, we'd rip it out every single time. There's just no way, man. But God designed it, and that's just the tail. In fact, it's not only water-cooled with uh, two gears, forward and reverse, but it, listen, travels about one micron per second. Doesn't sound like much, but listen, that's the equivalent to you and I swimming 60 miles per hour through peanut butter. <laughs> Not just swimming through peanut butter, 60 miles per hour.
through peanut butter, okay? And it was this video, uh, bacteria tale that was uh, on this uh, uh, show called Unlocking the Mystery of Life, which PBS originally aired for a little bit until they caught on to what it was doing to people. People saw this and said, wait a second, that's design. That implies a designer. And they literally pulled it from their website. Here's what they didn't want you to see. There are as many molecular machines in the human body as there are functions that the body has to do. So if you think about hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, blood clotting, respiratory action, the immune response, all of those require a host of machines. When we look at these machines, we ask ourselves, where do they come from? And the standard answer, Darwinian evolution, uh, is very inadequate in my view. In speaking on the topic of scientific naturalism and evolution... During the early 1990s, at a series of academic conferences, Behe first shared his doubts about the ability of natural selection to construct complex molecular machines. One machine particularly attracted his attention. I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts and all of its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor and, and so on. I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That, that's designed, you know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Behe's reaction was not surprising. For the molecular motors that drive bacteria through liquid, each depend upon a system of intricately arranged mechanical parts. These parts come into focus when portions of a cell are magnified 50,000 times. Biochemists have used electron micrographs like this one to identify the parts and three-dimensional structure of the flagellar motor. In the process, they have revealed a marvel of engineering on a miniaturized scale. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment. And even though they're spinning that fast, they can stop on a dime. It only takes a quarter turn for them to stop and shift directions and start spinning 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And just like outboard motors on motorboats, it has a large number of parts which are necessary for the motor to work. The bacterial flagellum, two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton motive force, it has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller, and they function um, as these parts of machines. It's, you know, it's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. Since its discovery, scientists have tried to understand how a rotary motor could have arisen through natural selection. As yet, they have failed to offer any detailed Darwinian explanation. In other words, they refuse to answer. Because what's the logical conclusion? You see design in something, what does it imply? A designer. And just because you don't answer, just because you call it the X factor, just because you label it as an anomaly, that doesn't answer it. Everything, whether you go from the telescope all the way down to the microscope, even further, just the tail on something in the microscope, 
Everything shows design, which implies a designer. Listen, now do you know why Paul says nobody has an excuse when you stand before God? I don't care if you're on that desert island or mountain. There's plenty of evidence to show us that he is real. And that's why Dr. J. Jastra, he's a NASA PhD scientist. He said this about the vain reasoning of the evolutionists. Listen to what he said. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. You go further down deep, what do you, you're going to end up the same conclusion. There has to be a God. There has to be a God. And how many different ways has God got to show us this basic core issue on his character? He's real. This is not make-believe. Whether it's the argument of being or morals or beginning or as we just saw with design, God is real. He exists. Now, here's the good news. How much pain, how much heartache could people avoid if they would apply, yes, faith in his existence, but apply reason to the evidence that he gives us so that they can be rescued from what we've been rescued from? Our world is still out there, guys, hurting with no answers in life, and we need to not just say that God is real. We need to demonstrate it with our lips and our lives with how we live. Because for some people, if they don't have what we have, there is no hope. And they live like this. True story. This girl said this. This is her note. Why did he do this to me? He said he loved me and he wanted to marry me. I mean, how could he spend so much time with her and not care how I feel? I can't handle this. Classes are getting too much for me to cope with. I I wish I could just die. Then I wouldn't be a problem to everyone. Mom's drinking's getting worse. I, I just can't handle it. I'm so confused. All we do is fight. Whenever I'm in the house, it's always fighting. I, I want out of all of this. So just please make it all stop. Take the confusion away. I'm all alone. Nobody cares whether I live or die. All they ever do is cause problems for everyone. I, I, I can't make it through school. I, I cause my family problems. I, I can't keep a man in my life. I'm a failure to everything that's important to me. The only way out of this is to die. Mom, I wish I could have been the person you and dad wanted me to be, but I'm not smart and I'm not pretty and I'm not athletic or skinny. And and I know that you, dad, never wanted me when I was born, so I wish I never was born. I can't do anything right. All I do is cause the rest of my family to fight. Why can't I have a talk with anyone? You're all so busy and here I sit. Please, someone, do something so I can't feel the hurt anymore. I hurt so bad. What can I do? It's so lonely here. I I want to sleep, but it just won't come. I'm tired of hurting and being alone. There's nothing for me here. I don't want to go on. I'm so cold. Please do something. I can't stand the empty feeling I'm having. I have no control over anything in my life. I'm breaking to pieces. Somebody do something. Came across this years ago in ministry. And that's the suicide note. We're in our little bubble. Praise God we're saved, amen? But we forget we're not here for the, just the bubble. There are people all around us who have no hope, and that's their only way out, so they think it's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan's a murderer. He's been one from the beginning. He's the one behind the issue of suicide. But the question is, how come that girl didn't know that God was real? Why didn't she believe when there's so much evidence that we just saw today? I'm not trying to put the blame all in one spot because I don't think it's all in one spot. I'm sure there were several factors involved, but could it be because maybe she didn't see the reality of God's existence confirmed in those who professed to know him? 
we, we say he's real, but the way we live, we give a different impression. Hear my heart this morning. This is a privilege for you and I. The gospel is a privilege to be able to share to this lost and dying world that has no hope and tell them this good news that God not only exists, but through Jesus Christ, we really can have an intimate personal relationship with the creator of the universe. It's awesome. They don't have to give up hope. They don't have to live in despair. They don't have to take that way out. Choose life through Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, if they're ever going to believe our message, we have to stop acting like practical atheists. We have to back it up with our lips, our lives, that God is real if they're ever going to take us serious. And when they do, they get to experience what we experience, the love of God. It's not just that God is real. But God loves us so much, his creation so much, that he did what only he could do. He sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. And if we would just get that out of the head, and if we would receive that by faith in the heart, then we will be saved. And not just when we get to heaven, but right here and now, we can enter into that wonderful, intimate relationship with him. That's what our world needs to see. It's the most amazing act of love that anyone has ever done. Kind of like what this earthly father did with his son, purely for the benefit of other people. We'll close in prayer after this.
Christian, may we never forget what God the Father did for us. That's what he did with his son, Jesus. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's not just knowing that God is real. You need to receive by faith what he did for you. That you could cross over from death to life. Please do that today. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the heart, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. 
And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that? right now.
Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.